Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 153, recorded on September 6th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Welcome back. We start with some great news this week. Lenovo has begun rolling out Fedora Linux on their laptops, with Ubuntu not too far behind. Yeah, we've known this was coming since April, but now it's finally rolling out, and it's right there, front and center, on the Lenovo website. You can buy an X1 Carbon Generation 8, and it's even slightly cheaper if you get it with Fedora. Yeah, not only front and center like you mentioned, but it's just straight Fedora. It's not necessarily a modified install, which is really nice to see. It's currently only rolled out to the U.S., but it seems like other markets are going to follow, as well as potentially the ThinkPad P1 Gen 2 and the ThinkPad P53. And we'll also be seeing Ubuntu pre-installed on some of these Lenovo machines soon. Yeah, it's not quite clear, but a Lenovo employee on August 29th, 2020 said that the Ubuntu X1 Carbon along, quote, with a number of other Ubuntu systems, will be coming very soon, but we hit an internal snag with getting the platform up that needed fixing, and that meant delaying the Ubuntu system just a little bit. So it seems like it's pretty close. You'll have your choice. And we also got an announcement this week from Canonical about the HP Z series laptops, or Z series, as you would say. They are going to come preloaded with Ubuntu. So that's HP reaffirming their commitment to selling laptops with Linux. And so now, obviously, we've got Dell as well and Lenovo. That's three of the biggest players in the laptop market selling pre-installed Linux machines, as well as, obviously, Entraware and System76 and all of the smaller independent players. It feels like we're really there. What I think is interesting about each one of these OEMs is the machines they're choosing to release that support Linux. Uh, like in the case of the HP Z series, those are high-end machines, right, with Quadro RTX GPUs in them and the latest Intel CPUs. And they have a high-end HP Studio Create-type machine, too, that has high-end components. Again, they, they talk a lot about machine learning in the announcement and GPU-accelerated tasks. Lots of focus on that in HP. In the Lenovo Carbon line, you see a developer workstation, a similar approach that Dell is taking. I, I think it's kind of this story of we think we have identified the user for these and have now begun to build a product for them. And they're all kind of syncing up. And in a way, it's kind of like what took them so long. Because it seems like System76 and Dell with the Sputnik project kind of proved this model out, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago at least. <laughs> so I don't know what took them so long, but it's actually nice to see it. And I think you have to appreciate the impact that upstream projects like the Linux vendor firmware service and upstream working with the kernel and driver development have have impacted and made this possible. It's pretty it's pretty great because chances are if these if these things are running stock 2004 or stock Fedora or even close to it, you're going to have a pretty easy time getting whatever distribution you want on there. Now that to me is truly like that's the moment there. That's what I always wanted. It's great to come loaded with something. <laughs> good. But I always wanted the ability to put whatever I want on that machine. Oh, yeah. And that's the good thing about the ThinkPads, at least. We've got that promise that it is just going to be vanilla upstream Fedora with no patches or anything. And so, yeah, if it's going to work with Fedora, put Arch on there, Sousa, whatever, it's going to work pretty much guaranteed. The other thing is, I hope there's a revenue story, at least is in some capacity for the distributions involved here. I, I'm not quite clear on what it might be. 
Um, it seems like there's ancillary benefits besides just direct revenue, but it would be fantastic if there is some some revenue for those projects as well to, to help with development. But they're nice-looking machines. It's interesting that none of them quite appealed to me. I gave a real look at the at the ThinkPads, and I'm not really in a position to buy one right now. But uh, you know, just like as a, like going with my shopping eyes, with would any of these appeal to me? And not quite. Um, maybe the HPs, but I don't really want to pay the premium for a Quadro either. I want a GPU, but I I don't don't want something that expensive. So that's where things like the System76 lineup or the Entryware lineup almost kind of appeals to my kind of Linux use a little bit more. But I'm not trying to downplay the the Lenovo stuff and the HP stuff because I think it means that you're going to appeal to businesses a lot more and developers a lot more, and that's great. Well, as for the revenue for the various projects. Well, for Canonical to certify a device to work with Ubuntu, there's a lot of work goes into that, and you have to pay them quite a bit for the privilege of that. So I would be very surprised if HP haven't paid Canonical a decent chunk of money for this Z series. Yeah, very likely. I mean, even if it's not a lot, even if it's only a few dollars per machine, depending on what the negotiation rate is, that means at least HP and Dell are doing that, which means that the Ubuntu desktop is making money for Canonical. That's also a big deal for Ubuntu users. That means the Ubuntu desktop is a revenue source for Canonical, and it's going to be treated as such. And I think that is, even if you don't buy an HP laptop or a Lenovo laptop, I think that's good for Ubuntu desktop users. Yeah, I think it's been the case for a while that it's been somewhat profitable, but obviously the more profitable the desktop is for Canonical, the more likely it is to hang around. As well as, obviously, the political reasons, it wouldn't be a good look for them to get rid of the desktop and just abandon it to the community. But, you know, when this IPO comes around or whether they sell or whatever, if you've got a nice, healthy profit margin coming from your desktop, then it's almost certainly going to survive. Yeah, it's about time we cook up, like, some new crazy prediction. You know how the prediction's always been Microsoft is going to buy Canonical or something like that. I feel like the new one needs to be the Canonical uh, uh, change to like become revenue, whatever, is they, they become like a WSL-first desktop where you use the Windows desktop, but it's all Canonical's tools underneath, and they just abandon the desktop project. <laughs> it's totally never going to happen, right? But it just seems like a great conspiracy, like, oh, WSL is going to be the end of the Ubuntu desktop or something. Yeah, why not start our return episode with uh, Wild Conspiracy Theory? Great idea. I thought so. You know, for a news show, it seems pretty solid. <laughs> Actually, why don't we go back to the news and talk about the PinePhone shipping Manjaro for the next community edition? Yeah, so this is relatively hot on the heels of the Postmarket OS edition. And this time it's going to have two different variants as well. One for $149 that is just the basic two gigabytes of RAM model. And then the $199 one, which is three gigabytes of RAM and double the storage, and also includes the USB-C dock, which allows you to have, potentially at least, convergence. So this is very similar hardware to the last Community Edition, but this is going to come with Manjaro. Now, I have a Pine phone, and I checked out Manjaro on it, and it's actually very promising. It's early, but it's promising. Yeah, and I think they have sharp people in the Manjaro project that are working on those ports, because I've experimented on the Pinebook Pro, and at the end of the day, I stuck with Manjaro on it. And I think it's in part because these are so early in the development process that getting access to that super fresh software and kernel and driver stack 
makes a difference on a device like this. I mean, it can make a huge difference in performance and battery life. And uh, like we just saw from the Ubaports project, a camera frame rate even can be impacted significantly by software updates. Mm. I think going back to this, though, what's interesting about the $199 variant is that bundled USB-C dock. They're calling that the convergence package. And it's that dock has a 10100 Ethernet and two USB-A ports on it and an HDMI out. So the idea is you, and you power it over USB-C. So the idea is you power it with a USB-C cord, you hook up your mouse and keyboard, you hook up an HDMI display, and now you're using that classic idea of a converged device. So then I imagine you'd have a somewhat usable desktop, but I can't picture the performance is going to be great. No, I think it's more proof of concept, really. But the thing is that if you can prove your concept on a low-end device like this, then you suddenly apply that concept and code to a higher performance device, then it's presumably going to fly on it. Yeah. So that's the hope, at least. You know, we might get a PinePhone Pro at some point. Who knows? I mean, it's pure speculation at this point, but you have to figure that's where it's going. It might be another couple of years or whatever, but at some point, at least I'm hoping to see that. But what we've seen with UbiPorts and with PostMarket OS is this is a deadline. When these devices are waiting to be shipped, you've got to get your image ready. And so instead of it being just a sort of, oh, well, we're developing it as, as it goes and you know we'll have these milestones here and there, this is a deadline. You've got to get something usable shipping on it. And Manjaro at the moment has a lot of potential and it's got Anbox pre-installed. And it's it's looking really good, but there is a lot of work to do on it. And so I'm hoping that this community edition will force them to get everything sorted and push it forward and we'll get something that's really usable. But the thing about the Pine phone is that it doesn't really matter. If it ships with something that's not 100%, these phones are aimed at tinkerers and hackers, right? And it's not difficult to get another operating system on there. So you end up with this kind of friendly competition amongst the various image makers for the Pine phone. And they also all work together. And it's just a great hardware platform for those open source projects to work together. You may have touched on a significant realization about software development for these mobile platforms, which has been a huge challenge for open source for a decade now. And it is the inherent impact that shipping something has on software development. That is a huge aspect. This milestone, it's you have a deadline, it kind of creates this sprint mentality, and people put in the extra work and they have to get it to a certain bar. And without that mechanism, it's sometimes just you'd never quite get there organically because it, it kind of requires a set of circumstances to get people compelled to do it. Well, that's the hope, at least, and this is the experiment that we're seeing, and fingers crossed, it has so far has gone pretty well. If you look at the state of UbiPorts, it's looking really good now on the Pine Phone. What are your thoughts on this, uh, as they call it a quote-unquote scheme, to donate $10 per unit sold back to the Manjaro project, or whoever the community image might be? I think it's a great idea in theory, but the margins are so low that um, I don't see how they can afford to do it. But I guess if they can, it's great because it is an incentive for these communities to get together and make something that is worth shipping on a device. And it's a great way for people to support those projects. I agree. I'd check a box or I'd be totally happy if the $10 was just 
bundled in the price to give back. Uh, I think that's a great idea, and it helps justify the project spending significant resources on getting it across the line. So the pre-orders for the Manjaro Community Edition open mid-September, and uh, we'll have links in the show notes at linuxactionnews.com slash 153 if you want more information. There's also a Telegram Pine64 news channel that uh, you can check out if you're a Telegram user. Well, while we're on the mobile topic, I just wanted to quickly mention something that I think is great news, and that is that Lineage OS is adding official support for the Pixel 2, 3a, 4, and some other devices. This is 17.1, which is based on Android 10. And so now I think all of the Pixel phones, apart from the very latest one, the Pixel 4a, have got official Lineage support, or at least will have soon. You know, the install on my Pixel 3 is getting to that old sort of feels super slow. You really feel it when you reboot it, and it legitimately takes like an hour <laughs> to kind of get itself wow. going again. So I, you know, more than ever, am kind of looking over at Lineage OS and going, how you doing over there? How's your Pixel 3 support? So let me know on Twitter if you use it on the Pixel 3 and how the support is, like the Wi-Fi, the camera, the Bluetooth, all of that. And if you use it with... Uh, Android Auto, I'd like to know as well, at Chris Lass on Twitter. Well, it is really easy to flash the stock image back onto it, so you've got no excuses. I think you should uh, just do it. Linux.ting.com. Get a $25 service credit and check to see if your device is compatible already at Linux.ting.com. If you're around Wi-Fi, then you really don't need to pay for a monthly set of data. Like myself here at the studio and at home, the only time I'm really not on Wi-Fi is when I'm doing my commute, and I kind of look at that as a backup connection. Ting now offers LTE coverage on three nationwide providers, so you'll be able to use Ting wherever you are at. And one of the things that's fantastic since I was a Ting customer is they've now added Verizon Wireless as one of those providers. That brought me back. Ting offers LTE for several networks, and the ability to choose is a powerful tool for me when I'm trying to get data on the road. And just about any phone will work on Ting. You can bring yours today, and when you go to linux.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit. And you'll always be able to bring your phone number. You can port that. And there's tons of cool phones that you can buy from Ting. I love that they still have a flip phone available. It's like 70 bucks new, 75 bucks new. And it's a really simple device. And the more phones you have on Ting, the less you pay per phone since it's shared across your devices. That's really nice. It's just $6 a line. There's no contracts. There's no commitments. The average Ting bill is just $23 a month per phone. So you'll get a month of free service if you use linux.ting.com and get that $25 promo code. Head over to linux.ting.com, click on the check your phone, and see if your existing phone will work. linux.ting.com. Mozilla's been in the news quite a lot while we've been off air, and this week is no exception. They've released Firefox 80 for Android, which has addressed some of the concerns that people had about Firefox 79, but not all of them. Yeah, our year-end review episode is going to be really interesting. But as of currently, Mozilla rolled out Firefox 79 a bit ago, and it had a year's worth of changes baked into it. But that release was met with some criticism, which the folks over at xdadevelopers.com do a good job covering in their write-up. But I'll give you an example. Like, for instance, Firefox 79 offered support for only a handful of extensions at launch, and it didn't include the About colon config page which would kill me. Also, a lot of people had a botched password migration, 
and people didn't really like the tab switcher and the removal of the back button. So in an attempt to address these issues, Mozilla's rolling out Firefox 80 for Android, and one of the top-line changes for Firefox 80 is the back button is back based on, quote, feedback from users. And I've been trying this out, 80, and it's not great. I don't want to say that. I want to say it's amazing. I don't need Chrome anymore. Yeah. But it's just... Uh Uh-oh. It's just not that good. Uh-oh. I had crashes. It was slow. And it's not just because I'm used to Chrome on Android. It just wasn't a great experience. And I've spoken to people who have been using Firefox for years on Android. And they say that 79 was just a disaster. 80 is slightly better, but it's still nowhere near what it was before. It just seems like a misstep from Mozilla. I get why they did it, but I just think that if they had a year to get this right, they should have done a better job. Yeah, that's a shame. And when you say that, I buy it because you are a Firefox guy. So it it really is your preferred browser to use if you can. Yeah, on the desktop, it's all about Firefox. I'm looking at it right now. (laughs) Yeah, I hope they get this together. I feel like the wheels are coming off a little bit uh, because this criticism and the general state of Firefox Mobile and some of the projects that they had in the oven they all kind of feel like they were converging on improving the situation, but then a lot of the people involved, as we know, got laid off. And so it seems like while the product isn't at its best, they've also gotten rid of a lot of the people that were working on the bits to make it better. And what we're left with now is maybe a little bit higher in the stack where we're going to get fixes and not some of the fundamentals that may actually be driving the core issues. But at least they've got that Google money now, eh? Maybe. I mean, if that keeps it alive, honestly, I'm okay with it. I don't love it, but if Google continues to finance the leverage that allows the web to stay truly open, I can find peace with that. I just don't see Firefox on Android competing. It's just not good enough. I think that on the desktop, it is. I think that there are some things that Chrome does better. There are some things that Firefox does better. But ultimately, I think it's much of a muchness. There are certain websites that don't work in Firefox, but that's not necessarily Mozilla's fault. But for me, it's an easy choice on the desktop that I will mostly use Firefox and then occasionally use Chrome for those things that I need. Whereas on Android, even someone who wants to use Firefox, I I used it for a good couple of days. And in the end, I, I said to myself, I'd use it right up to recording and then see where we are. But in the end, it was at least a day or so ago that I just just had enough. I just had to go back to using Chrome. And it's I just can't see people who don't care about software freedom at all or, or even know what that means using it. And so I just I, I can't see them gaining any traction on mobile. And that is where most of the market is now. You look at the changes they're doing, particularly with mobile and the extension support, and it's not that I I don't appreciate and understand the circumstance and logic, but I think ultimately when you zoom out, what you see is in response to Chrome's absolutely crushing market dominance, they just keep trying to go for the average consumer. They're trying to go for services and the average consumer. And they're, when they look at the usage, they'll say something like, well, you know, um, in quote, a small number of our users were using this feature or something like that. And I guess I feel like the thing that they don't value is that market is the boosters. They're the advocates. They're like the most loyal army of Firefox users. They're the people that are going to tell their friends and family. And I don't know how they expect browser adoption to work. It's, it's not going to be by going straight at the average consumer. 
because you can't compete with a Google ad on every single search result that suggests you try Chrome or pop-ups on Windows 10 encouraging you to set Edge as your default. As Firefox, they just can't compete with that. That's the lesson Netscape had to learn. And so they've got to go at the technical market, and that's why killing their developer tools and those parts of the company, to me, feel like when you combine that with what seems to be their on-surface strategy of Firefox, it makes me think they truly don't get it. And they're just going to continue down this path of going after the mythical new user, that unicorn new user that understands what a web browser is and what the value is in replacing the web browser that comes baked into their operating system of choice versus going after the technical crowd that's going to be the one deploying it for IT departments or telling their friends and family to install it. it I, I know it seems silly as a company to go after this tiny market, but this tiny market are your best advocates and you keep turning away from them. And so my diagnosis is they're just going to continue on more of the same now and they will continue to decline and we will end up in a mono-browser culture. Well, we're there, aren't we? We are very nearly there. Your options are what? Chrome or Edge, basically, at this point. And I suppose Safari on the iPhone. I think that's pretty much it. And that's all WebKit or Blink. Yeah, I wish I had more positive things to say about it. But just from what I've seen from Mozilla, it feels like they need to really turn the corner somehow. And I just, I don't know what that's going to be. But uh, we live in hope, I suppose. We may end up relearning the lessons from Internet Explorer. Uh, speaking of lessons from the past, James Bottomley, who is the Linux SCSI subsystem maintainer, uh, I'm familiar with his work on Secure Boot and Linux, but he's also a distinguished engineer at IBM Research, has put a post up that he has titled Lessons from the GNOME Patent Troll Incident. Yeah, and he says that this description is somewhat brief and links to an article by Amanda Brock and Matt Berkowitz, which is a little bit more detailed. But this, I think, is is a really good write-up of what happened with it all. Because if you recall, Gnome faced a legal challenge from Rothschild patent imaging over Shotwell, over what was quite a spurious patent claim. And Gnome settled with Rothschild, but it wasn't made public what exactly happened there. But there was enough leeway in the settlement for someone to make it public and now that's exactly what James has done with this post. And it's pretty much what most people expected, I think. But it is interesting to see the details of it. Yeah, he happened to be in just the perfect legal position. The uh, the Gnome Foundation folks and the Shotwell folks, they couldn't release these details themselves. But James can do it because he's released software under an OSI-approved license. So he's covered by the release and thus entitled to a copy of the agreement under Section 10. But he's not party to any of the covenants, which means he's not forbidden from disclosing it. So he's right in that perfect spot, and so he has linked it right at the top of his blog. That right there, full stop, is news. If this was the entirety of this story, this is actually a pretty big deal because there are a lot of lessons you can learn by just going through this as an open source project. But what's fantastic is he also did an analysis of the attack. And some of this won't surprise you. He writes a key element of the attack is to offer a settlement licensing for the sum less than it would cost to even get a defense going, a legal defense, which is going to be base, if you're lucky, $50,000, which is how they make money, right? Because projects don't have that kind of money around. And they'll just say, well, why don't we settle? It's going to be cheaper than going to court. And you will go to court. One of the problems he writes is that when a patent is issued by the U.S. Patent Office, the court must presume it is valid. So any case that 
impunges the validity of the patent can't be decided as a summary judgment, i.e. it has to go to court. In the Gnome case that sued the Project Shotwell, the thing is, even there, Shotwell predated the filing of the patent by several years. So just on its face, it should have been obvious that it wasn't valid. But because the court must presume they're valid, you go. And simply put, it means you're spending money. And probably you're lucky if you're going to get out for under $100,000. And in the case of Shotwell, the Dome Foundation stepped up in a really big way, but they also had some generous backers come in and offer some legal support and the community. And if it wasn't for that, they probably would have had to settle. And this is, it's just, it's this weak attack that they, that they come after these projects with, knowing that you can't even afford to take it to court. Yeah, no wonder everyone settles. And it just shows how broken the patent system is, or at least the software patent system is in the US. Yeah, it really doesn't seem like it works for this particular thing. There were some compromises, and those are outlined in this post, which you can go read here. But the big takeaway high-level lesson is that troll-based attacks are going to continue to be a threat to open source. And the one source, Rothschild, may have been neutralized, but others seem like they're going to be following this MO. And maybe one of the bigger lessons to take from this is if these attacks aren't going away, then we need to figure out some way to fund projects so they are not forced into settling. Maybe it's some sort of community funding uh, that is, that's held by a foundation, something like this, because otherwise these trolls can just roll in knowing that most of these projects can't afford this. And if there's a defense fund that's set up in public and ready to go, like we did 16 years ago when SCO was threatening to sue Linux users... We could potentially do that again. And just having that war chest there may prevent companies like Rothschild Patent Imaging from even trying. Maybe. Maybe, but as we saw with Bounty Source, hanging on to money is not easy. It's kind of relatively straightforward if you've got money coming in and out. But if it's just money sitting in an account, it makes accounting for that money pretty tricky. So it would need a proper organization to manage it. You can't just have some, you know, a bunch of people stick money in a PayPal account or whatever. It takes a lot to get this sorted. So maybe it is someone like Mozilla, maybe the Linux Foundation, someone with some clout and respect in the open source industry needs to organize this, I think, because otherwise we're just going to get blindsided again. Eh, it's fine. You just host it on an AWS bottle rocket with blockchain, Joe. Blockchain. <laughs> That's all I got to say, right? Blockchain. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Just invest it all in Bitcoin. Right. And that'll uh, definitely work out. Yeah, yeah, what could go wrong? So Bottle Rocket's a real thing. It's Amazon's new open-source Linux distribution that's built to run containers. It's designed, they say, to improve security and operations for a containerized infrastructure. And they've done some obvious things here, uh, like use SE Linux and the natural isolations you get from using namespaces and whatnot with the Linux kernel. But they're also doing other things that I think are kind of neat, like they're using device mappers, Verity Target, a Linux kernel feature that provides integrity checking to help prevent attackers. They're disabling root logins. They actually kind of build this whole thing to be centrally managed and discourage administrators actually connecting directly into it. It has a lot of similarities to other projects trying to solve this, but the implication here in this announcement is this has been built based on the needs they've observed of AWS customers directly. Now, I wasn't particularly interested in this when I first read about it because I thought, well, it's just an AWS thing and you know, no one's going to benefit from it. But then reading into it a bit more, you find out that it's your choice of either MIT or Apache license and the whole thing is open source. How useful it's going to be outside of AWS, I don't know. 
If you plan to use this on-prem or on a different cloud provider, then do let us know. linuxactionnews.com slash contact. They're fully taking advantage of GitHub with this one. The project's up there, the issue tracker, their CAN board with their uh, future project issues on there. And um, the thing that I thought was interesting is a lot of the stuff above the kernel that they've written has all been done in Rust. Yeah, I thought that would catch your eye. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's news. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. You never know what else might be coming back. So be sure you're subscribed to the All Jupiter Broadcasting shows feed. Just search that up in your podcast catcher or find a link at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find my personal site at chrislass.com. And mine's at joelrest.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.